Welcome back to We're All Stories in the End. Here we are. It's uh, November the 8th, and I'm joined once again by friend of the show and all-round good egg, uh, Ryan Blake, who, uh, Ryan, I believe you used to work for the United Nations Intelligence Task Force. Yeah, I mean, I did a one-point dabble in the uh, Task Force game, and and it is a game, let me tell you. Uh, Yeah, I mean, I, I, I served... You know, I served the United Nations back when they were united, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. What, um, so we can't obviously really talk about this because it's all classified. So obviously, I'll, I'll, none of this will make the final show. Obviously, I'll, I'll cut yeah, it yeah, all out. But, uh, what, what, what rank were you? Well, you see, I, I, I came in, obviously, I came in as, as a private. I worked my way up through the ranks because, you know, it's, <laughs> It's not like nowadays where you can just uh, make a donation to uh, the uh, Conservative Party and get a commission. Um, <laughs> uh, but yeah, so I mean, I, I mustered out as a as a second uh, lieutenant, not lieutenant, lieutenant. Second lieutenant. Yeah, and because you know the brig was big on being English, even though you were Scottish. Absolutely, confusing. yeah, yeah. Um, so you were working under Alistair Gordon Lethbridge Stewart. Can I ask, was this was this in the seventies or the eighties? Because a lot of people aren't quite sure, you know. Yeah, I mean, a lot of fuss is made about this. Now, the thing is, what most people don't realise is, is that Unit, um, if I can use the parlance, had its own separate, um, like, calendar division. Like, it, it had its own stationery, so it, it printed its own calendars and own diaries. The problem was, was that the guy who used to be in charge of that, he got fired because he took a day off. And so, thus, the confusion arose. <laughs> uh, um, and um, obviously, again, this uh, I'll edit all of this out, but what was your favourite alien Im- invasion? Well, one of the things was, and we always used to joke about this, was that so many of the invasions were like led or, or you know schemed up by creatures with with scales. Every one of them we had. I mean, dinosaurs, the Silurians, the other ones. They they all had scales, so they all kind of blurred into one. So basically, we used to just you know pray that we'd be invaded by someone who was vaguely mammalian. Just you know, we had like a we had like an alien invasion bingo thing, you know, going on. Right, right. Um, and uh yeah uh, i don't mind telling you that that sergeant benson lost a lot of money that's all i'm gonna say he was not a good judge of invasion character that's, uh, and, and and we'll leave it we'll leave it at that i think we should leave it at that um and uh and and thank you for for um for giving me a little insight into the work of the united nations intelligence task force bearing in mind obviously i'll i'll cut all that because it's classified um please tell the listener what you're up to these days specifically your podcast well i mean i uh i'm in charge of a podcast called wibbly wobbly dicey wicey 
which basically what we do is we have this this simulation of of you know back in the unit days we have this simulation of that you know that period where we've got the doctor coming in and you have characters and we basically tell people how to you know how to partake in that type of role playing game um you know different areas you know the, the reviewing various books and and intelligence reports and 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 we quite literally tell you how to host your own alien invasion and things like that. So that's that's what I'm up to lately, and also part time as a used car salesman with you know who. Right. Yeah. Say no more. Nods as good yeah. as a wink to a, a blind Dutchman. So we're gathered here today to not to get married. I don't know why I've gone for that kind of. <laughs> this is so sudden. Yeah, well, you know, I, you know, I've been, I've been dying to talk to you again. Um, we're here to talk about death and diplomacy, which is a romantic comedy. So hmm. the first thing we should do is, is, is chat about romantic comedies. Have you got a favourite? Do you loathe them? Where do you stand on the genre? I, I, I am a fan of them, but there's so many of them that it, they have to be done really well for me to even like them a bit. And and just touching on this this novel just quickly, I mean, it reeked of a kind of <laughs> a kind of Primark level moonlighting with <laughs> Benny and Jason. Essentially, um, I mean, there are bits that are clearly meant to allude to Han Solo and Leia, which is a romantic comedy I do enjoy. Um, but yeah, no, I, I am a fan of that. I mean, how, how, where do you come down on on romantic comedies generally? I find that it's something. As I get older, I've got a lot more time for, really. But I do like... I th- I've, I've recently seen a couple with Jason Bateman, which are really quite good. And um, as long as they're not too kind of sugary sweet or, or saccharine or set at Christmas, then I can, I can really get into them now. The way you said set at Christmas was a very Christmassy voice, though. I just feel you should be aware of that. <laughs> Well, I I thought I'd I'd jingle all all the way. Oh, well, there you go. Another romantic uh, comedy set at Christmas. Well, there you go. Mm. Yeah, you can't get away yeah. from them. Um, yeah, I mean, I like I like some of the tropes. I like it. I like them more when you've when you've got the kind of really um, strong female lead who is kind of distinctly underwhelmed by the kind of average guy who's who's coming after her, which I guess, again, brings us back to the book we're going to talk about. But that's... Yeah, an actual strong female lead as opposed to a badly written male character. Yeah. 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 So, um, Death and Diplomacy, published in, I want to say, April of 1996 uh, by Dave Stone. It was his second new adventure after the previous year's Sky Pirates. Did you enjoy Sky Pirates, and were you pleased to see that Dave Stone was writing another new adventure? No and yes, respectively. I wasn't a huge fan of Sky Pirates. I, um, I, I, I saw what he was trying to do with it. However, despite that, I have read quite a few Dave Stone novels, some of his Judge Dreads and um, some of his Bernie Summerfield books. And I, I do... When he gets out of his own way and isn't trying to be, well, not trying, when he isn't unbearably pleased with himself and re- and writing like a very, very smug, 
I am the inheritor of all things Douglas Adams kind of a style. <laughs> um, I really like him. He has some good ideas. Um, so Sky Pirates left me a bit cold, although not this is related to him particularly. I did like the front cover quite a lot of Sky Pirates. I'll, I'll give the book that. Yeah, it had a really great cut because it was it was like actual proper Sylvester McCoy off the telly looking a bit goofy. Exactly. Yeah. It was almost like back in his Omen days, it was so good. Yeah, it really was. So, um, but um, I, I don't think Dave painted it, so um, we can't even give him credit for that. Well, well, you know, I mean, yeah, you can't get blood from a stone. Um, so, and and then when, when, he, when this book finished, now sort of jumping the timeline a little bit, when this book finished and, he, and it later was revealed that this is supposed to be part of a trilogy and the next one being Oblivion by Dave Stone, mm. I was left a bit cold because the the Sky Pirates and Oblivion do kind of relate, but I don't see how this is the middle part of a trilogy. So, um, yeah, I mean that's slightly going off on a on a slight tangent there, but it's yeah. fa- it's fair enough. I mean, yeah, I I remember feeling the same, and it might just be that it's a trilogy on a kind of um, you know really arcane thematic level, but it. it it didn't work for me and and a lot of his stuff i found quite hard work like when i started rereading this a few days ago for the purpose of making this very episode um i got a few pages into the book and i was thinking oh this is going to be really hard work but then i read most of the book in one sitting so um Mm. i got over that pretty quickly and i think if nothing else, I think you, you as a, if you don't mind me saying this, you as a Blur fan would probably really appreciate this book because if you read this book, you really don't need to ever worry about time travelling back to the 90s because this book is so painfully 90s. It is it is like the decade has stamped on your head as you're trying to read it. It really is. I mean, I have enough trouble getting out of the 90s and the, the fact that I've, I'm doing this podcast series about all the books that were published in the I mean, not all the books. You know, cry. I haven't got time to look at, you know, everything from like Martin Amis and early Hilary Mantel and <laughs> Salman Rushdie building up to the ground beneath her feet. You know, I'm concentrating mainly on the Doctor Who books, but even that is kind of me in my uh, in my niche looking at a decade that I I say I love it. I say I remember it. I was pissed for most of it. So well, pr- perhaps that's why you love it. But that yeah. was a. Top, yeah. A top bit of 90s name-dropping there, if nothing else. <laughs> so um, let's let's come at this book through the back door, if you will. Um, mm. We are introduced to three alien races who are um, in a sort of perpetual war with each other. The Saloy, who are sort of untrustworthy, and I thought a little bit kind of Terry Pratchett, Douglas Adams. Some other ones, and a third race. What did you make of this setup? Um, I think, again, it's, it's very 90s. These three um, alien races, I think, are very clearly be- meant to be in some kind of cold slash hot war. You know, we'd reached, in the 90s at this stage, we'd kind of reached the end of history. America was the only superpower. And the Doctor, I think, is basically America in this. He's coming in to kind of mediate the peace, mm-hmm. you know as the enlightened, intelligent, well, in this case, white man, but he's, you know, not a white man exactly. But, um, and this, again, not to, you know, um, 
not to step on stone, but <laughs> it really seems like he has taken this the formula of the new adventures at this stage and really like gone right. I don't want to deviate from it at all because you literally have the companions thrown out of the TARDIS at the start to separate them from the Doctor. Okay, tick. You know, the you know the Doctor clearly knows what's really going on, but isn't saying anything. Tick. He has to negotiate peace between hostile powers. Tick. Um, and yeah, but um, Ros and Chris have some soldierly but serious yet also humorous adventures. Tick. And Benny falls in love. And well, in this case, she doesn't get her heart broken, but tick. It's really by the numbers, this. And it, depending on your tolerance and appreciation for, well, the 90s and Virgin New Adventures at this time, you're either going to love this book or hate it, I think, is my opinion based on that. Yeah, I think that's that's fair. And I, th- I think Dave Stone is probably the most Marmite kind of author in the range. Hmm. So what did you think of uh, the, the Scrack, who are revealed to be the ultimate baddies at work in the book. We're not going to go into the plot maybe so much, but um, the Scrack are these little kind of three-eyed, little furry gentlemen um, led by uh, a chap called Shug. And they're sort of... Basically, they're beat the meat, aren't they? Essentially, yeah. They're the, they're the cute ones that aren't. And the, they Now, this is not fair because this came afterwards, but they reminded me of like a malevolent nibbler from Futurama. Essentially, <laughs> complete with the three eyes, being cute, pretending to be the pet, and actually being the arch manipulators. Um, I, the, my prevailing thought was, don't go near them in the street because somehow these scracks managed to plant an invitation on the doctor when he was the first doctor, which was however many, you know, whatever Kennedy want to use, thousands, hundreds of years ago, mm-hmm. back in a novel called The Empire of Glass. And I just thought, one, how is that possible? Because the Doctor changes his clothes. So unless he has some weird transferring his pockets thing, you know, that seems very unlikely. And I don't really understand why they put that continuity link in. But yeah, I don't, they were okay. They were very 90s. I hate to keep saying the not the 90s again, but they're a very 90s villain. Well, yeah, but Beep the Meep came from, what, the late 70s or the early 80s, I want to say? It's the very, very late 70s. Right. Yeah. So yeah. so I think, I think Dave probably, if he didn't take the idea, he was, you know, subconsciously informed by the idea of Beep the Meep. But also I was kind of reminded of the Saranga conundrum, just in terms of having a little tiny cute uh, chap who turns out to be um, really quite unpleasant. True. I mean, you're right. I mean, Doctor Who seems to have, I don't know, I didn't invent the trope, but they do seem to have that. I mean, yeah, the the Scrack are not exactly much more than a stone's throw from (laughs) Meep the Beep and what have you. How many many more of these stone puns have we got to look forward to? Because I am enjoying them. I'd like to say enough. Um, uh, yeah, I'm going to keep it ambiguous, depending on how ashamed I feel of myself. Uh, so this book, we've got two uh, aesthetic considerations. Uh, there's a new font, a new typeface for the, yes. the book. What did, that kind of? I was, I was a bit oh about that. I wasn't sure what to make of that. I'm, I don't like it. And um, uh, but but the actual cover. Now you made a very good comment about the cover. It's it's it's. Uh, Benny Summerfield and this new chap she's met 
whose name is Jason Kane. And who do they remind you of? Well, uh, 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 two levels, really. I mean, there's the pri- the uh, Primark Moonlighting uh, <laughs> that I alluded to earlier. Yeah. Uh, but given given the way Jason Kane is is painted, I mean, he's Han Solo, basically, isn't he? Isn't he Doctor Who's Han Solo? Well, I mean, we'll come we'll come back to that because I I have a I have a suggestion of my own. But um in terms of how they're painted, I think he's he's very sort of he's a he's, he's a big tall good-looking man with a mullet. Um which is at odds with the way Benny initially kind of relates to him because she keeps thinking that he's a sort of ratty-looking, shifty guy. Benny, on the other hand, looks absolutely breathtaking. Mm. This is this it, is one of my mm. top three Benny picks. Not that I've got a, a spreadsheet or anything. I'll cut that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, Benny looks amazing. Jason, I'm not sure. Um, and apart from those two, I think it's a really boring cover. It is very, very... I mean, it's very bog-standard, and I mean, I don't know if it is particularly 90s, but it, it, it's very formulaic. Although I don't think Benny looks like Benny on the front cover particularly. No, I think you're right. She looks like um, some kind of, like, you know, international supermodel or, or pop star yeah. or something. Yes, I was thinking musician with that, with that Ace-esque jacket she's got on. She does look like a... Yeah, an early nineties, late eighties kind of, you know, um, yeah, uh, some some form of famous person, if, one way or another. If like if Serverlan had a like really sexy younger sister who that's, was that's actually very good. Who was yeah. a pop star? Then I think it would be it would be this particular iteration of of Benny. It's you know it's not it, it's not what I'd call my go to classic depiction of Benny, but I think she looks wonderful. Um, we're possibly giving too much time to the cover, but it's all you've got to judge a book on before you've read it. And um, yeah, I just yeah. Uh, well, no, hey, listen, we've got to cover this completely. I mean, leave no stone unturned. <laughs> <laughs> so let's let's um, I suppose cut to the uh, cut to the chase, or indeed mount the elephant in the room. This book is was was kind of commissioned and conceived to introduce. Benice to a man who would go on to become her husband in a very short space of time like literally yes. the following book is the wedding um but this is where benny meets jason kane let's let's tackle let's tackle him in his own right first of all yes there is a lot of han solo about him um can you do you see any other kind of influences there or or is it just a kind of a Mary Sue from Dave Stone. I mean, he is a little bit boiling the bag, you know. I mean, I alluded to, I mean, for those of you who remember Moonlighting, there is the occasional bit of um, David from Moonlighting, um, played by Bruce Willis. Uh, but yeah, it's, the thing is, right, now m- maybe you know some, have some insight into this, but I don't really understand this was obviously planned out. This was not an accident. This didn't happen sort of spontaneously. It's a novel. Mm-hmm. So why would you set up a relationship like this over the course of one novel to spring straight into a marriage when everything else in the Virgin Adventures kind of, and it's not quite the eight DAs, but 
the stories tend to be very expansive and over several novels one way or another something like this usually takes ages in virgin and in the bbc books but for some reason they compact all of this uh, and and they you know i don't know how you felt about this but i was i found it so tedious that it was the whole oh they're they hate each other they hate each other oh we're in love you know the whole we're only teasing each other because we love, we fancy each other thing. <laughs> you know, it's it's it's. I know it happens. You know, and it's in it's a trope of romantic comedies. But this was really really compact. It's like punch punch, scream scream, insult insult, shag shag, marry. Yes, if you want the equation. I I um, excellent the the scasis paradigm right there. Um, <laughs> I i think it it works better now because i'm able to appreciate what the book's doing and what the book's essentially lampooning whereas the first time i read this in you know i'd have been about 20 i'd have been at uni um i wasn't really a a rom-com kind of guy so i just saw this Mm. as kind of you know but yes it did it did come kind of out of the blue and and set up this kind of really you know really artificial wedding for the 50th now obviously someone at virgin towers was thinking to themselves in the sort of back end of 1995 oh we're going to publish our 50th book next year we need to make that a real event and they could have gone a number of ways with that they could have thought let's kill off let's kill off ace let's have uh, let's regenerate the doctor let's um destroy gallifrey in some kind of time war but what they decided to do was, all right, let's marry Bernice off. Don't know why they thought of that, because she was their best character and the single greatest innovation the range had made. But nevertheless, they decided their best commercial way forward was to get rid of their best character by marrying her off. And then you're right in that doing having her meet the guy in one book previously was just really inadequate, I think. And, and if I'm going to be honest, I vastly preferred her relationship with guy guy Dulac in sanctuary yeah, yeah yeah that was a much better relationship because the thing is benny's got a sense of humor but she's actually a very well conceived of as a very mature self-actualized and mostly fully realized character right from the off and that was what's so great about her i thought and then you have her fall for this schoolboy guy who it seems really much more like it was the best sex she'd ever had so let's get married that seems to be his only real thing yeah she's very much a kind of three-dimensional character who's like academic and resourceful and self-reliant and um generally fabulous and he's kind of a two-dimensional one-note character but do you know what i mean it's yeah (laughs) Yeah. he's he's not quite i don't want to say not quite good enough because it makes me sound like i'm jealous that a fictional character has fallen in love with a different fictional character i think yeah i think she needs someone who could meet her more on her intellectual level are you are you throwing your hat in the ring because it sounds very much like you're the time to the, asking her out the time has gone do you know what i mean i was i was there for her in the 90s but she didn't look at me twice that's and a temporal tragedy. It's you know that's it. It, it be like that sometimes, you know. Mm. Um, Scully was another one. She she wouldn't answer my calls. Yeah, with, with me it was Willow from from know. Buffy. Yeah. Well, of course you weren't really her type, were you? 
Well, I was I was for three seasons. Right, right, yeah, sure. So there was a mm. window. And there was a there was a slight window there, but yeah. yeah. So I mean, this has I, become a Lonely Hearts book review. It card. has, hasn't it? Yeah. Which which nineties pop culture characters did you really fancy thirty <laughs> years ago? Um, no one can accuse us of of wasting people's time with our tangents and our nonsense. It's all it's all connected. We're through the looking glass. One of the um, the most kind of baffling things that the character does in this book is sort of speak in like alien to Bernice for about three chapters before hmm. just starting to speak English for no for no real reason other than to kind of keep the page count ticking over yeah well I mean he's crafted as an annoying character and he deliberately it's not it's not like well they, are, they aren't from two different worlds literally or figuratively but you know they're, they're conceptually they're two different characters from two different sort of areas of existence if you like and it just seems like He's not annoying her in the sense of they're just different. He just seems to be annoying her because why not? And like you said, the page count, mm. you know, and you said earlier about, you know, the idea of of um, parodying romantic comedic tropes. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and but the problem is, at least I found, was that Dave Stone, no pun, just his name. Uh, he's he's so thickly layered in in like sarcasm and irony in the way he writes that in all honesty, I can't tell whether he's being deliberately kind of mocking or whether he's being earnest. So I couldn't buy into their romantic relationship because to be honest, I always felt like, you know, he's part, I don't know what what language we can use on this podcast, but it's like, he's always taking the Mickey. I think we can say piss. If you want to upgrade that to a piss. Oh, well, I definitely think he's taking the piss all the time. That's how it reads. Sorry, I, I didn't want to, you know, I mean, I, I, I didn't know what rules you had. I don't know, you know, I mean, I, I, didn't haven't, wanna... I haven't got any rules, really. I mean, I'm I'm keenly aware that a lot of people who listen to this are very delicate little souls who um, can't possibly cope with swearing. And a lot of them are just fucking potty mouths so it, it really it really varies so so we can we can swear then it's not set in stone we can we, we can it's not set in stone so jason kane he is annoying he is inept he is slightly unkempt unshaven a bit rubbish he's there to be the avatar in some ways for the reader he's basically fits oh my god he is yeah he re- he really right? really is he's fits with a proper mullet He's fits with a mullet and his own spaceship that he's just about learnt how to fly. Um, now, when, when when did the mullet become verboten? Well, I mean, I've always been cynical. I mean, you, when I was, let's say, in the in the very early nineties, my friends would have these kind of like, uh, you know, big posters up in their rooms of like Liverpool players of the eighties. Yes, and of course. You, you would laugh at the hair. So yes. I think that the mullet kind of cancelled itself as soon as it had finished. So I'm guessing about 80, 88. Yeah, I'd say that's about right. Definitely yeah. the late 80s. Yeah. The, reason I, the reason I ask is, apart from wanting to mention Chris Waddle as being the patron saint of uh, mullets, <laughs> um, this book right now, going back to my unit days, the calendar in this book is actually really confused because according to the, the, the synopsis says it's set in the present day, 
But if you go into the, and I actually wrote down the page reference on page 123 in the published text, it says that 1996 was 15 years ago, which means it must be set in 2011. Yeah. So I just wanted to point that out because because um, I actually this this shows the lengths I go to for this podcast in in Lance Perkins' History of the Universe book. Yeah, it, it says. It, yeah, it says 1996, but the text means it must be 2011. So it's yeah. So so I'm I'm just trying to ascertain exactly how out of date his mullet is. Mm. Essentially, I mean, maybe Dave Stone is making a case for the mullet being timeless. Maybe sentimental. I mean, you know, it's not like he's got a heart of stone. Does he perhaps sport a mullet himself, or or did at the time, and thus wanted to cement it in literature? Yeah, he's he's quite. The last photo I saw of him, he's quite thin on top. So I think maybe he's lamenting. Do you think uh, it's a, a compensatory mullet? I think it could be. It could be a proxy mullet. Yeah. So, so on the mullet uh, tangent, what's the what's the most disastrous haircut in hindsight that you ever had? Well, here's the thing. This is going to sound very strange, but I could never stand having hair on my head. When I was 24, I had a full head of hair, right. and I decided get rid of it and i've been stone cold steve austin style ever since oh you know what that that's a bonus one was that because the accidental stone i've 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 crossed the rubicon here with my puns now and now they've taken on a life of their own but yes you've what you've 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 been a clean head since you were 24 yep and i had a full head of hair right given everything i've been through now i don't think it would grow back but i don't intend to find out so that's fine with me do you have to shave that like on a weekly basis or do you let it grow for a month or do you get, you know, your, you know, your, the, does the missus do it or, or what? Well, here's the thing. Okay. So I used to shave it, wet shave it every other day to keep it smooth. Wow. When, if I let it grow like two or three days, no one else can notice. But to me, it feels like I've got long Hell's Angel or hippie locks. I right. cannot stand it. I hate head stubble. Uh, but fortunately, I got um, uh, my girlfriend has uh, very lovely bought uh, bought me a uh, one of those bulldog head shaver things, and now oh. I can buzz cut it down to nothing in like ninety seconds. I'm not plugging them, but they're great. Um, wow! And so, so now I can literally do it. I can watch a bit of TV and think I've got a slight bit of stubble. Don't like that. Boom, gone, smooth. Yeah, and it's very therapeutic. You'd be amazed how therapeutic shaving your head is. So we've got we've got Jason Kane. He meets Benny. He hasn't seen a, hum- a human being for, what, what do we say, years? 15 years. Yeah. Um, and his first his first response is to pretend to be an alien and avoid her. And then they bump into each other again. And then there's actually some quite enjoyable banter, I think. There's a bit where, where he says something like, um, you can kiss the ring. And she says, you can kiss mine, sunshine. And he says, I see the spirit of the music halls is alive and well. And I really liked that one three-line exchange, which I think says everything you need to know about them. Um, they then carry on with sort of dialogue that isn't quite that good for for about another 50 pages. And then they're at it like rabbits. It, like I said, it's a, it's a relationship based on cliches. And I, I, what I don't get is they thrust them together super fast. They get married super fast, and then they divorce them super fast. So ultimately, what's the point? So the relationship kind of ticks every box in the romantic comedy toolkit. Um, the B 
story because obviously while he's creating this relationship he dave stone knows that he's actually got to tell just enough of a doctor who story to you know justify the book so there's a few chapters of the doctor in this conference to try and bring peace about between the saloy and the uh, the other ones um, yeah. and then chris and Roz are sort of in a in a war somewhere they've got some kind of vaguely entertaining stuff but i think of all the the book's three kind of areas theirs was the i found it the least engaging and i don't know if that's because they they are new characters and they're not based on anyone so and they weren't quite as successful i think as benny summerfield what do you reckon yeah i know i agree i think it's only really Gareth Roberts and Kate Allman who seem to know what to do with these characters. Everyone else just seems to want to shunt them off the side as quickly as possible and just give them a minor story that doesn't really affect the main plot at all. Um, which is a real shame because I think some people write them really well and there are some some great moments with them. But just this just seems to be an extended... Um, I'm trying to remember. Was it... No, not Dad's Army. What was it? it ain't Half Hot Mum? There was, there's a whole bunch of references in this yeah. to that. And, and I mean, that's a bit niche, especially if you're trying to sell this book to an international market. It's uh, a, a very niche reference to a, what is an 80s sitcom. So, yeah. yeah, it seemed like, oh, I've got a couple of ideas that are very, well, not exactly original. Let me just throw this against the wall and see if it sticks. No one cares about Chris and Ross, so I'll, I'll give it to them. <laughs> that, that seems that seems to be it really i mean i'm I'm trying to think what else there is you know what else that is he does he really do you know i just yeah, uh, i know there's there's really not much to say about it and they get you know if you divide it all up they probably get about 70 pages of a professionally published book so you yeah. think there'd be something to talk about but i mean really because obviously i think the, the point of the book is so clearly to do a rom-com for Benny Summerfield. Yeah. Everything else kind of falls by the wayside, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. We've just come off the back of a couple of really quite serious, gritty books, which are very um, important and dramatic, and we're kind of heading into the Psy Powers arc, which is kind of complex and gritty and very, very gun. So... Hmm. This book and the the following book, Happy Endings, are at least a little bit of a breather and a chance to have a little bit of fun. And I think what I didn't like about Happy No, no, I'm gonna I'm gonna take a run up and come at that sentence again. What I didn't like about Death and Diplomacy at the time was it was an annoying bit of trivial nonsense in the middle of some good, important, dramatic stuff. And yeah. I think what I like more about it now is that it's a rare example of a writer having fun with Doctor Who and telling a story that's entertaining and fun rather than just it being guns and revelations and, oh, this is so important, Oh, Do you know what I mean? Yeah, no, it's true. It is a rare thing and it gets rarer. Although the weird thing is he chooses to do it in the middle of a war between three civilizations. It's a strange... Well, I know we've just quoted a couple of eighty sitcoms with military a military bent, but it's a, it, yeah, it's it's an odd tack to take on it. But you're right; he's trying to have fun. 
in his first book, Sky Pirates, Dave Stone makes the point of saying that comedies don't have to be funny, which I feel like he kind of set himself up a little bit there to, to fail because... <laughs> It, yeah, I, it's the thing is when I read his comedy, I, it, it's so constructed in that this well, well, that's Douglas Adams, well, that's Terry Pratchett. Um, this is oh, there's a riff from Ren and Stimpy. This is a bit from Me Ain't Half Hot Mum. It's it 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 doesn't stand out as being anything other than a, a you know, it's like it's like he's put together a jigsaw puzzle piece, but instead of linking the pieces together, he's kind of cut them with scissors and hammered them and glued them into place. And do you think that reading this book now, sort of 30 years outside of that zeitgeist, do you still get those references? Do you miss some of them? Is the book better for not being, you know, read in the 90s or or, or whatever clause I need to end the sentence, which has got away from me, I'll be honest. <laughs> I mean, I, th- I, I read it and I just thought, oh, this was very clearly written in the 90s. This is a Dave Stone is a very nineties person, um, you know, um, and it doesn't stop, you know. A, a Rolling Stone gathers no moss. The jokes are bang after bang after bang in this. <laughs> so, so, I mean, it's easy to read. It's not a hard read once you've grokked what his reading writing style is. Like you said, you know, to start with, you had trouble, and then you've got through it really quite quick yeah this did not take me a long time to read but i think that's more because of the paucity of depth rather than the you know the effervescence of his writing style shall we say i think you're right i think sometimes in these books you do have to sort of go back to the top of the page because you realize maybe your mind has wandered and and you you've missed something yeah whereas with this it's you know you don't need to follow it too closely no, although there are a few weird continuity nods in it, but you don't need to sort of necessarily get them. You don't need to have read The Empire of Glass to understand what, you know, and you don't need to have read Sky Pirates and, and you know, I mean, there's a there's a pinky in the brain reference in here as well, right at the end, which, which, I, might, which I would have noticed at the time, but it really stands out now. And you know what? The funny thing is, going back to what we were saying about um, Benny and Jason's relationship, the relationship it reminds, reminds me of the most, thinking about it genuinely, in a, and and take this, I think you'll appreciate this, it's more like Roger Rabbit and um, Jessica, yeah. Yeah. She's also on my wall, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> but it reminds yeah. me of that, in that he's he is overtly cartoonish and a bit of a type, and yeah. she is, I mean, all right, granted, we're both two you know, heteronormative males and we both have a thing for Bernie Summerfield. So we're slightly biased, I guess, but Bernie Summerfield is Jessica Rabbit by comparison. And, and even, even in that film, when, when Bob Hoskins says to her, why are you with him? And she says, because he makes me laugh. And it seems like that's about the only thing she could say about him while she's with him. Really? That's a really good observation. Yeah. Um, because yeah, he's again, he's kind of a two dimensional character. Yeah, and she, um, you know. So, on a wider point, is this something that's true of all of the new adventures? In that, um, to a greater or lesser extent, they are all very much of the time they are written. They all name chapter titles after songs that are in the top forty in the nineties. Mm. It's all jokes about 
The X-Files and um, lots of other shows um, or films of the era or the, the concerns of the era. Um, and reading them 30 years later when even I have forgotten some of the stuff they're alluding to. Um, does it make the books look kind of antiquated and, and dated and kind of pointless? Or do they stand more on their own feet now? I, and I do not mean this as a pun, but I th- think of them more as time capsules. They are a, a kind of like, I mean, now they're almost like a love letter to the 90s. At the time, they were contemporary, obviously. But it, it I, when I read The Virgin New Adventures, with a few exceptions, it's like the 90s. This is what Doctor Who was in the 90s. The same way that when we go back to TV, when Doctor Who was in the 80s, it was very much Doctor Who of the 80s and John Pertwee and whatnot, the 70s, etc. Yeah. So, so I, like I said, I think of them, you know, you can think of them as a temporal bookmark, if you like, but they're a, they're a time capsule. They are dated, but necessarily so. This time round, I've been reading Death and Diplomacy, a Seventh Doctor New Adventure by Dave Stone. Now, that's a name I remembered from the 90s and early 2000s on various comic strips set in the Judge Dredd universe, most notably the pretty good Inspector Morse-inspired Armitage. Unfortunately, he also wrote the woeful Soul Sisters, which deserves to be forgotten. Finally, he did a quartet of novels about Dredd himself. I vaguely recall those being of variable quality, but to be honest, I've not read them since they came out nearly 30 years ago. So will this be good Dave Stone or bad Dave Stone? Let's find out. Well, this book is a comedy. I know this because the author felt the need to tell me via a note at the start. Always a worrying sign. He's right. Comedies don't always have to be stuffed full of gags, but they do have to be good. Plus, he moans that readers have been willfully failing to pick up all the allusions and references in his prior novels. Maybe all that's meant to be a joke too, but it certainly didn't enamour me to the author when I'm about to read his new novel. But, moving past that odd little introduction, the core idea of the book is a reasonably good one. What if not only were the gods you worshipped not real, but your entire history had been subverted and changed to make you believe in them by an outside force? Oh, and each of the three alien races has been conditioned to hate their neighbours, even though they have more in common than they think just needs the Doctor to solve the mystery of the Hollow Gods, broker a peace between the races, and everybody can go home happy. Great, huh? The problem is the execution of that last bit. I just felt the Doctor didn't really do anything, just revealed stuff at the most opportune moment. I get this incarnation is secretive and enigmatic, but have him be more proactive. Having said that, I did like the fact that the Doctor subtly manipulated the alien delegates into realising that some of their most closely held beliefs about their enemies were just the results of errors in translation. Otherwise, every time we cut back from whatever was going on with the companions, it was just more wandering around in endless conference suites. All a bit dull, really. As for the surprise reveal that Shug, the small fairy creature ignored by everyone, is really the bad guy? Hey, hello? Star Beast, anyone? 
Mills and Wagner did it first and better in Doctor Who Weekly a decade and a half earlier. Anyway, let's talk about those companions. And the whole Chris and Ros section where they go off and play dress-up as soldiers. Cut that out and nothing will have changed. They're utterly superfluous to anything meaningful in the story. Mere distraction to get the page count up. But I like that Benny and Jason are in this book. I love them in the Big Finish audios. I was interested in reading about how they first met. Clearly this is where Stone's heart lies in terms of this novel. But oh dear, not only do they sound like such annoying idiots, their romance is utterly unconvincing. I get that Stone was maybe going for a they don't like each other but fall in love in spite of themselves slash soulmates angle. But when they spend so little time together on the page, and what's there is just endless bickering, there's no time to feel that connection forming. Little furry Shug spits out that he's fed up with their sexual chemistry charged and mutually misunderstood arguments. I just found Jason to be a bit of a twat. Maybe that's meant to be his charm, but their conversations felt about as sexually charged as a wet lettuce. So is this book in any way funny? Well, vaguely, I guess. There's some slightly humorous situations, but generally it's all trying a bit too hard. Stone seems to be trying to tell us how clever he is. Remember that author's note from earlier? And honestly, some of the language and phrasing used just sounds as if it comes from a teenager sniggering away in a corner. And judging by certain elements, he also clearly wants to be Douglas Adams. Newsflash, kids, he's not. Not by a long, long way. A good book? No, not really. Enjoyable? Sadly not. A comedy? Probably only a comedy of errors. And that's a shame.